The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. Welcome to my first episode of Raising Good Humans. I really want this podcast to be useful for you and hopefully reduce some of the unnecessary but very natural stress that comes with raising a human. So I'm planning to try a mix of formats and guest types and tones to see what's most helpful. Some will be unstructured conversations with familiar moms like Drew, some like a peek into a private session, some will be discussions with colleagues, authors of books you haven't had time to read but are awesome, and some episodes will be structured giving my own point of view or answering frequently asked questions and questions from you, based in science but mapped out considering all of the practical needs of real-life parenting. I want to hear from you, I really do, about which formats and tones work which guests you want to hear more from, what's helpful and what isn't. I know your time is valuable. Help me be helpful by DMing me with feedback on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast or my email, RaisingGoodHumansPodcast at gmail.com. And stick around for the end of the podcast where I will always provide show notes just to address anything that needs clarification. And now, please come and join me and my beloved friend Drew Barrymore for the inaugural episode of Raising Good Humans. Are you seriously? Oh. Did you land on the safe? I don't even know what to say about the fact that this is where we're sick right I now. I love it. I'm Listen, so you know what? When you, when you, when you, we're resourceful moms. Yeah. If you have a problem, it's all about solving it, not staying stuck in it. In this case, we're sitting in a closet. We are in my closet. Let's let's set the scene. <laughs> That's how we're opening this podcast. Yeah. Where are um, we, Drew? I'm Drew Barrymore, and I'm with one of my favorite people on planet Earth, Elisa Pressman, and someone who has been my true confidant for mm. seven almost years now. It was absolute love at first session. I was terrified. I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep my child alive, and... You know, you're just terrified all the time, and you're sleepless, and you're hormonal, and you're just flipped out, and it's it's the biggest thing a woman will ever do with her life's journey. I don't know what it is for men, and it could be... Could be the same thing. It could be the same thing. So they are really difficult, wonderful, euphoric, terrifying months, and I felt like I was in a really scary tidal wave, and then you were like this life raft that came into my life and made me feel like I was gonna survive and live, but I was gonna get tools because no one, I don't wanna be saved. I wanna be like told and shown how to save myself. So you never have to Exactly. I don't wanna be rescued, but I don't know what I'm doing all the time. So I need help, I need guidance, I need something that I clearly am not coming to myself or I don't have the experience of. But then what ended up happening is (laughs) Aliza and I... I was like, when's this one going to turn another corner? I realized that (laughs) I was like, oh, wait a minute. She's cool. This is a cool chick. She's not, you know, some unattainable, perfect person who's (laughs) pushing ideals. Because I swear to God, when I thought, like, of some coach coming into my home telling me, like... (laughs) How to parent. I was expecting someone that I would not want to socialize with. And then it turns out that, like, you're one of my closest friends and have been for almost seven years. So 
I think everybody needs to feel like who they're getting their advice from is someone who's a human being and humorous and fun and cool as well, because I think it's easier to look up and look to people when you don't feel like they're looking down at you or you're projecting that they're going to look down at you. And you just don't do that. But I, I, I'm not up anywhere to look down anywhere. But you speak with total authority and eloquence and you know your stuff. You always have, you are credentialed, you are studied, you are in-depth, and you really have spinning plates and answers and avenues of literally why things are occurring at every turn. So it's amazing if someone can be that on point and yet not kind of uptight and unattainable about it. It's it's a very odd dichotomy that you have. Wow. Also, I begged you not to go to a studio so that we could like fit this in and That's make true, it work. That's true, but we're working moms, so. Exactly. But you and I are good. You got you and I will squeeze a walk-in or yeah. do something. So I was like, let's just get this done like that. Like we start booking studios and people get involved in schedules. I'm like, just you're I'm too close to you for that. No, it was so right. And, and I'd rather be in a normal <laughs> environment. And like be, this. <laughs> which is this not normal. I would rather be in a closet with you. By the way, this and is... And anyone a, in the world. This isn't like... Just to, just to paint a picture, it's not like this is some lavish... No. Mariah Carey would walk in this closet and, and be like, I wouldn't... This is the closet's closet of her closet. This is a New York City This is a real New York City pre-war little closet. Like, maybe is this two feet where we're sitting three feet? <laughs> you hurt yourself sitting down. That's right. I banged my elbows. <laughs> yeah. And, like, there are coats on our shoulders and, like, pea-touched baskets with uh, supplies Oh, my God. The, this is so organized. It could be its own podcast. I always tell you when I'm doing professionally, you always talk to me about weird we're friends. We talk. And then when you came up with Raising Good Humans, I really liked that because you had floated other titles to me. That I mean, I, thank you for saying it gently. I said, like... I would never listen to that. Never. <laughs> and I don't even get what it is or it's too quippy or I hate it. I, I would just send you like, yuck, no, lame. <laughs> and I am going to frame the graphic you sent me. That <laughs> <laughs> looks somewhere between a preschool, like, it's sign meant, like, choking hazard. I don't know. It was, and baby rattles. and It was awful. It was just the worst thing I've ever seen. But the new one that you have... Oh, well, I mean... Yes, I directed you, you to Joanna, a graphic the... artist, but... <laughs> It's so good and clean and clear. And I also begged you to not just have a logo because I would like personally for myself to see a human being behind it. I want to know who is telling me how to raise good humans. So it's Dr. Eliza Pressman, Raising Good Humans. And since I've worked with you from zero days to basically almost seven years now with my two girls. So when you're talking about raising good humans, when does the raising good humans kick in? At what age? And is there a difference between babies and cognitive and developmental? And you said, you know, sandbox pincher, all of that importance. Is that a part of raising a good human or is that a part of raising a healthy 
cognitive functioning baby? And then at what age is it like, oh my God, I kept them alive. They've got skills that they have and it's a necessity. And what point does the energy, behavior, disciplinarian stuff, what, what's that bracket? Raising a good human starts from the beginning as early as you can with the understanding that it's dynamic and if you didn't start thinking about it until three years in, you can always repair. But it starts with how you engage and love and interact with your infant from the beginning. And those moments you cannot underestimate. You just can't underestimate the the smushy, yummy moments with your newborn baby. It changes your brain structure. Those little newborns that get love like that, where somebody's talking to them and interacting with them, even though they look like little blobs, those brains grow bigger and they have more capacity for all of the things that create a good human. And actually one question I was gonna ask you is, what does it mean to raise a good human to you? Like when your kids are raised, when they're, not that they ever finish growing, but when they turn 18, what do you feel like would make you say to yourself, you know what, I've got this, this was done. My work here is not finished because I'll be a mom forever, but I feel like I raised two good humans. That's sort of the way I want to see it long-term, but in the short-term, it doesn't start, you know, at age three when you start to think about how you're engaging in discipline or teaching them empathy or any of those things. It really starts with creating an experience where you have face-to-face Con- interactions, contact, talking back and forth with your little infant who's making bubbles at you. Those things create a confident, safe feeling human being. And that's how you can become someone that can love. Mm. But now I want you to tell me what I you think. I'm glad about- the answer is day one. Because <laughs> I, I would have like guessed if I was like in a test. I would get like flop sweats because I hate tests. But I would... <laughs> I would raise my hand and be like, day one, <laughs> question mark. So that's, that's mind easing to hear because the care is there at day one. If the caregiving is there and the care. The concern with getting it right mm-hmm. is there on day one. For me, it's all about manners and safety. And I don't care if they want to spray paint their hair pink. I don't care if they want to pour powdered sugar all over the floor and make snow angels. And if you've ever tried to clean up powdered sugar, it's really hard because it's not only everywhere, but it's, it's sticky too. It's the strangest molecular structure chemically that I've ever. And I had like an entire like entryway covered in it, like a half an inch thick. And I just, instead of getting mad at that moment, you I was like, I'm just this. Exactly. I feel like instinctually, and it's not just because I would hate it. It's I think they would hate if I was in their face trying to correct everything, trying to make a lesson out of everything. Mm-hmm. How annoying. And a talking head yeah. would I become to my children. So that projection of what I think would just be so much of a turn off stops me from doing that because I don't want them to turn off because if they're turned off, they're not listening. And when I do want to say something, I do want to choose a battle. I do think something is like a very important thing. Then I don't want them to tune me out. 
You, right, you're picking your battles. I'm so picking that they hear my you. battles. So if they turn 18 and they're kind and they have manners, that is everything to me. And then I guess it seems like such a broad category, but how they handle things is so important to me. That's coping mechanism. It's awareness of other people's needs and feelings. It's grace in not overreacting or having patience to see how a problem like unveils itself. Mm -hmm. That skill set in life is not something I had at a young age. I had to learn it definitely, and I'm, I think I'm still really <laughs> learning it. And I think I'll be embarrassed if my kids are 18 and I'm still struggling as a human myself to we, constantly we master life. And I just feel like I, you know, every day I still have such a long way to go. But I just want them to be kind and, and really aware of their surroundings. Because just being nice isn't enough taking those horse blinders off and noticing how other people are thinking and feeling and functioning is a type of intuitiveness that I am, I will do everything I can to service for them. And most of all, I'm going to start with my own behavior because I can say something till I'm blue in the face, but if I'm doing something different, it's words and they don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. So I also think if you keep saying something over and over, you're just a broken record. But if you're doing it over you, and over, you live that. you're imprinting. That's why when we were talking about, remember when we were talking about presence and gratitude? Yep. In one of the sessions. Yes. One of the mom's groups. Which if you're modeling a sense of gratitude and, and really thanking the world around you constantly, you are not going to raise children who... Of course, when you're five years old, you might not understand how to appreciate just how great you have it. But over time, you're seeing that this is part, this is built in you. And so you're modeling that and teaching kids over time what these things mean. There's no way that they're going to come out of this not feeling that way. Let me ask you a question because I, you know, I, I've always been very sensitive to not asking my kids to say thank you or disciplining them in front of other people for the sake of that person thinking, oh, she's on top of it, or she doesn't like if her kid's not behaving like, you know, Von Trapp, perfect, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. doily shirt wearing, like <laughs> hair combed and saying their pleases and thank yous mm -hmm. exactly as they should be. How do you feel about that? And if you're a parent that, you know, doesn't want to try to have to prove to others about your whole philosophy in one second, <laughs> what's a good way to, like, take a child aside? Or when is a good time, like, to talk about that? Because I talk about it a lot, but I, I find sometimes I back off from being like, and say thank you right, right in front of that other person because it just feels empty and, like, I'm trying to force something, then it's not genuine from them. And I'm trying to prove to the other person that this is how I would function. Right. And I just go, God, this is such a cluster. You know what? Yeah. So that makes me think of a couple of things. Cause part of it is you're right. You should never do anything to satisfy. Like, well, I need to show the other parents that I'm on it. 
mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people do things that they don't even feel comfortable with with their kids because they're prioritizing what other people think. Exactly. And, you know, they don't want to, they accommodate some kind of behavior yep. that to avoid a tantrum in front of other people because the they're not thinking of the long game of like, I really need to get comfortable with the fact that sometimes my kid's not going to be happy. And that's totally okay because they don't want to be embarrassed. Yep. But with thank you and and apologies go off to the side of that too because forcing a kid to apologize is shaming and they're never going they're not going to feel sorry because you said go say you're sorry and it doesn't fix anything but a lot of people do that out of some obligation mm-hmm. to the other parent. Yep. The thank you and the please, I think you're right to be on top of kids and annoying about it when they're really young. Yep. is a little feels like a little controlling and invasive but if you can lighten it by first saying it yourself which I know you do and then also you can maybe joke around and say like thank you or something Mm -hmm. in their voice and just let them know that your expectation is that they'll say it but you get it's hard to talk to big people and say thank you all the time and be gracious all the time because it's intimidating and so you can lighten it but still get the point across and sometimes even say what do you think about not when you're in front of somebody. What do you think about when I remind you to say thank you in front of someone? Would it be more comfortable if we have a sign? Yeah. Like I tug on my ear and you know to say thank you, but then nobody else knows that I prompted you. <gasps> I love this. Um, that kind of thing. So you are building the habit because it truly is a habit. I don't know that they even need to feel grateful before they say thank you. Apologies are a different thing, but a thank you and a please, you can just do it to be polite. I, I love that. I love any type of levity or like private signal or any like kind of cool above a pay grade of a child's conversation of like, hey, what it, what would work for right. you? Bring them into it. How do we do this together is so cool. I've never said to my kids, you have to say you're sorry. Again, I find it so empty and I don't want them to turn a blind eye to the empathic nature of an apology. Totally. An apology is something very big and profound, and it's not something, as you said, that can feel like not only shameful to them in that moment because they've been penalized and have to go fix it, but it's like that's a word. You're right, saying you can't actually a fix word it that. that someone else told you to tell you yeah. in the exact time frame. Right. So I feel like the absorption of what really went on there is also quickly dismissed because you, you said you're sorry, you you now we move it. on. Let's talk about what happened in and then, a more appropriate time. Totally. I remember going to a school to do a preschool observation, and there was a little girl who went to tell the teacher that her feelings were really hurt because these two girls didn't include her in kitchen play. And the two girls and the little girl who told the teacher came together for a meeting, and the teachers didn't say anything except they told the two girls who perpetrated the crime to the two perpetrators to apologize. They said, I'm sorry. And they hugged the little girl and I saw them roll their eyes. Mm -hmm. And the teachers (laughs) said, thank you. And they, and I was like, and I wish I had a video to show everybody that you think you're doing a service because you're insisting on this apology, but you're basically saying like, continue to be a jerk, but say the nice thing and then you can keep going. And Mm -hmm. that's why, you know, that's why I'm much more concerned with exactly what you said, figuring out with a child, for example, what do you think could help make this other person feel better? 
And if they say, maybe I could apologize, fine, go apologize. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. Well, it's their idea then. But they came up with it. Yeah. And if they need some ideas, if they say, I don't know, you can put that in the list of ideas. But it should never be, come over here and apologize. Because it's just, like, empty. Frankie was upset because the girls weren't playing with her. And I said, God, I know it's hard when, like, you have friends and they want to play with each other and... Maybe they're not including you as much as you want. I totally understand that. I said, you know what's interesting? I bet if you just did your own thing, they would come back around to you very quickly. But if you pressure and cry and yell and scream, it might take longer because they might find that upsetting. And I bet if you're just as cool and calm, they'll be back before you know it. And I was like... Was that too adult for my five-year-old girl? And I was like, but it's true. It's like women with men. The classic, like, bad thing to do in a relationship is, like, pressure the guy and squeeze him to death and be like, I want to know when you want to move in, marry me, and have children. Oh, was this too much for our first date? Because that's what we women do. We want to. We want it all laid out for us. We want the fantasy, but we just know we're in on the fantasy. Right. Right. And then we'll be open. So Give you, me the world. You Frankie early. Promise me everything, and then I'll be and then cool. surprise Because I'll know I have you, and then I can relax. But until I have you, I cannot relax. And I've thought about her being with those kids, and, you know, when kids cry and scream and rebel, it's there's something chemical that I would imagine happens in a reaction to those other kids, and then they want to avoid the energy and the tension and the loud crying noise and all of that. And it's like, again, you're going to want to tune that out. So I was like, if you are just calm and doing your thing, you then give them space to come back to you. And it'll probably happen sooner than later. But I understand that in that moment, it doesn't feel good. So that was, like, how I handled that. But I question all the time, like, the life lessons or the discussions. And they may last, you know, 50 seconds or five minutes. And I I will always walk away going, did I handle that okay? (laughs) I almost never walk away going, nailed it. (laughs) Because the few times I thought that I did, like, it all imploded again, like, not too long later. So I was like, oh, God, what are we all doing? But the words get in there. They don't. They might not translate to that moment because she has to build her self-regulation muscle. The thing that you talked about for when she's 18, that's going to build over the years and practicing, like, responding calmly to the things that happen around you. That doesn't happen. That takes... And we're still working on it. But she heard you and she'll see you doing the same thing. Well, that makes me want to ask a question about siblings. We both Mm -hmm. happen to have two girls. Mm -hmm. And I always found other people trying to intervene when Olive and Frankie would fight. And it was my instinct to let them figure it out Mm -hmm. until we all know the line of like when... Someone's going to get hurt. We got to intervene. But it drove me bananas that everything was trying to be, again, made into a life lesson. And I was like, these girls are not going to learn to self-regulate. They are not going to learn to have coping mechanisms with each other. I idealized siblings growing up because I didn't have them. But the one thing I always did hear, which didn't change my opinion of how much I valued it, was that they all fought. 
Sure. So I'm like, isn't this common practice? And why are we trying to make a federal case life lesson like TV movie out of every like ABC after school special? <laughs> like, what would you say to parents who have siblings who are in a mid tiff? So depending on the age, because so if there's a one year old and a three year old, you can't really just leave them be for too long because the one year old is very helpless. Yep. But when you've got a two and a half year old and a four year old, you can start to just wait and see what happens and how they work it out. And then if you need to come in, sit between both of them and try to be a, a non-judgmental support system for helping them with their language with each other. What you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is this, what you're saying is this, like, here's what, here's my observation of what's going on. Can you guys think of something that would work for both of you? And you really can't do that until they have some language to be able to help themselves. But that should only happen when they need help. If they're just tugging at something, like trying to figure out how to take turns or, you know, to, to come in and say, remember, we share, we share, we share. It's not going to help them. It's just going to make them fight more. And they won't learn. Like, it's like stopping kids from wrestling. Little kids, siblings wrestling with each other and saying, no, rough play. How can you self-regulate if you don't learn that there's, like, a point during roughhousing that's fun and funny and, like, maybe a little painful? And there's a point where somebody's getting incredibly... Like they, they will get hurt if you, yeah. if you or always scared or terrified. Yeah. So if you always stop it before they've, you know, figured out anything, you get a kid who, when they do rough house, loses their mind and really hurts people because they've never been exposed to the normal self-regulation you have to have when you're playing in a social setting. And you learn that with your siblings. Does like eye level ever affect kids you think like, hugely if you're not like standing over them looking mm -hmm. down but actually like no that's when I think of sitting between them that's what made me think of it's, it it's specifically it's not because you, you everybody needs to sit down in a kumbaya circle it's more like because I'm lazy and my knee being on my knees hurts but <laughs> <laughs> but it's really just eye level because when somebody's looking down at you it's if you just look up and try to imagine what it's like if a I'm giant five, was like, over you. I'm five, I know. You, right. That's my I, whole we're life. the same height. So, geez Louise. Even though you're 50 years younger. I'm just, I'm ah! a different generation. Shut <laughs> up, you are not. <laughs> so, the person who's above us, if there was like a six foot five person above us, that's very, like, scary to have somebody like that looking down at you, telling you anything, you're certainly going to be way more focused on just getting, taking your breath and going like, what's happening than what the words are. And you're absolutely not calming them. Cause what you do want to do with younger children is co-regulate with them. They can borrow some of your calm. There's energy in the room. It's not woo woo. It's actually physics and they'll feel that calm. So if you can sit down and just take a breath, and instead of getting angry with two little beasts that are fighting, go, oh, wow, they don't know what to do to calm down. So I'm going to just be a calm presence, and I can chime in when they need support. But it has to be neutral. If you're always like, you, the older one, are being awful, and you, the younger one, are a victim, or vice versa, mm -hmm. they sense that you're taking sides. You are much better off just being like, I'm out. I'm, I'm out of it. And then as they get older, you truly stay out of it. 
they just I you tell can them fully stay out also of it. if I didn't see it I'm I can't how help can you. you help them yeah I say I'm I I could hear the reports all right. day long but I can't <laughs> it's not fair I can't corroborate them and so and they're coming to me with like a problem no one's coming to me with like a wound right and even if they that, did though if there was like a little if there was a scratch and you're like Okay, but how did that scratch happen? Because oh, it could have happened never from get... tons of provocation. You you never get a straight yeah. answer. So you're so much better off not setting a dynamic where they compete for being your favorite, yeah. which is what happens when you, you, you intervene too much. And then you can have family meetings later and say, like, once a week or once a month, you're going to sit down and say, so this month's been heavy in the fighting category. Is there something you guys can... Do you want to, like, as they, like yours are old enough now, do you want to write up some sort of family rules where you just, you guys decide what is past a limit, like is touch, you know, punching you past a limit, is taking something from your drawer past a limit, you know, what do you guys feel in a calm moment where you agree on it and you're bringing, again, like before, bringing them into the decision about how this is going to go and how their fights should go. And then they can come up with what happens if they cross a line. How important is individual time with multiple children? Reality makes it so that it is what it is. It's however you can give time to them. If you have two minutes that you can give them, that's a magnificent two minutes of just pure, I am yours, you you are mine, we are together. But to like separate them and do like different activities with them, is that... It's great and special and wonderful and for sure I encourage it, but it's not, you can grow a perfectly good human being and just not have time or yeah. sa- it's not safe or you don't have the help and yeah and a lot of stuff that we know about child rearing for whatever whatever that is is bias because it's an there's an expectation of a particular lifestyle of particular goals for your kids and so we can't take it too seriously i think there's a ton of information out there the science is some some of it is beautiful but some of it's really misused or misrepresented in the press or misrepresented by people who have really strong opinions about it. I mean, something as simple as sleep where kids need to sleep. That is a critical part of child development and human development. We know that people are healthier when they get good sleep. How they sleep, whether it's on the floor, in your bed, in their crib, in a you know, that's irrelevant. They need consolidated good like sleep. Siblings and bunk beds doesn't Do- matter. Doesn't matter. What matters is that they have consolidated, good, consistent sleep. So if somebody says, am I such a bad mom because I'm sleeping in the same bed as my kid? I'm like, who is telling you this nonsense? Was that me? (laughs) (laughs) If somebody, for example... My um, kids still sleep with me. It doesn't matter. I love it. It's just if you didn't love it, then it wouldn't be okay. Uh, I love it more than anything in the world. And I have had to fight to feel comfortable with that because there are always opposing forces Mm -hmm. that make you feel very shamed about that. Anybody who has a strong opinion about it is just picking articles up that they want to use as their evidence, but they're not actually looking at the whole picture. And I think that's the most dangerous thing about getting to, you know, reading or Googling about parenting and child development is you get into a situation where you believe whatever it is that was the intention of the author. And unless you have a background in how to read scientific peer-reviewed journals, you're going to get, you can get, and even then, it really is dangerous because it makes you feel crappy. And there's really the most important thing for your relationship with your child and for their growth is for 
you to have a good relationship yeah. with your child. And not feel, and not shame. feel shame and shitty and depressed because you're just failing. By the way, my foot is fully cramped. <laughs> it's because you're sitting in a really tight pre-war <laughs> New York closet that Mariah Carey would think was like... For a shoe. <laughs> like, and a dirty broom. And she would just be like, ugh. So I have some rapid fire questions that if I, I know what you do and what you're capable of and your expansive library of knowledge, if someone's listening, what is like, a, instead of an A to Z, a one through five of like why you wanted to do this and what you want to get across? So one, I think we can build really resilient human beings who can get out in the world, respond to their environment, as you said earlier, in a way that helps them be both compassionate, aware of what's around them, and thinking about other people, and thinking about what's good for themselves. And there are ways that we know our interactions with our children can help influence that. And that's really important to me, because we need a world that has, that, that acknowledges that when you this is a stolen quote from Frederick Douglass, but it's much easier to build strong children than to heal a broken man. And so I think part of this was about, on a, on a macro level, thinking about helping parents think of the really important ways that we can influence how our children grow, the positive ways. And part of it is there's so much to read People are, there is so much out there. There's tons of information. People have lots to say, but nobody has time for any of it. And I feel like there's this huge pressure for moms and parents in general to read a ton of books, to find out how to be the perfect parent, but it doesn't take that much. You know, a lot of the books are incredible. I'm interviewing a lot of the writers of some of my favorite books on parenting, but the reality is that they could be distilled down to a few really main and important points that have an influence on the decisions that you make day to day as a parent. Well, please do that on your podcast because that is the that is the a plan. Well, that is also the attention span that we have as a society, and it is also the logistical time frame right. in which most people have to absorb something. What I like about the quote that you gave that it is easier to basically raise a good child than it is to cure a broken adult, mm -hmm. is that for people who have had difficult experiences growing up should feel empowered that they can do it differently, that they will not repeat some of the things if they are conscious and caring to change the blueprint that any former toxicity you might have experienced does not have to be your narrative as a parent or your child's experience. And that, for me, is something really important because I <laughs> would never... Want to replay that? <laughs> oh, my God. I would never in a million years want my childhood for my children. I wouldn't take them out to discos at night. <laughs> I would not let them not go to school. Right. I would not let them be public figures. Of course, I am divorced, and that wasn't really even 
a big problem for me. That was like the least of my checklist worries, funny enough, about repeating anything from my childhood because my parents separated before I was born. So it was the norm um, for me. However, I wanted to create this like Aussie and Harriet environment for my children to overcompensate for my lack of experience in a healthy family dynamic. And what I realized is that I don't know exactly what that is because I've peered into the keyhole of what seemed like some pretty perfect families and there was plenty of stuff being swept under the rug, Mm -hmm. plenty of like, oh my God, did you really know what's going on over there? And it's like everyone, I don't know a family who isn't functionally dysfunctional at Mm -hmm. best. Mm -hmm. So that is really great for me to hear that quote. Who is it? Douglas? Frederick Douglas. Frederick Douglas. That's great for people like me who think that somehow that scarlet letter of, you know, a difficult unorthodox and even toxic childhood at times will be like your children's narrative. Now, like, mind you, I love my childhood. I wouldn't take it back for anything. And you learn so much and look at your life. I'm not damaged by it. I'm enhanced by it. But it doesn't mean I would throw my kids into the same pool. And you've done some work to get there. Yeah, I've I've had to raise myself. And I've, I, I think we all as adults have to figure out how to raise good humans within ourselves. Okay, number two. Shit, that was number one? Uh-huh. Well, number so two. So much for my uh, succinct, pingy speed round. <laughs> I, yeah. We're women. We're There's no speed round. We're, we're is... too in-depth. <laughs> so something that you just said, we all have to come to terms with what our own experience was as a child to raise our kids. And so just thinking about it, and when you talk about everything from potty training to discipline to school bullies to being grateful, you always go in your head like, well, what messages did I get? How did I feel about those? What would my parents want for me? What didn't they want for me? Did anybody give a shit about that? And what can I pull from that that's helpful? And I, I hope those, those dialogues in our own heads get... Um, what, what am I doing with my hands? What's the word? A hula? <laughs> a luau? <laughs> no, oh, are we in Hawaii? It does, it does look like that. You know, like it, it prompts, it prompts all of us to think about our own experience as a child so that we can think about how those experiences can, should, would, or shouldn't inform how we're raising our kids. I also think you just have to forget give and let go of don't carry that smelly bag of shit with you (laughs) for the rest of your life because you really will never like grow past being a child who feels like a victim and that the world owes them something because they didn't get a perfect little tv show of an upbringing right well there's no question that being a forgiving person and letting go are another two. We could that could be a whole other thing. I'm like, ooh, podcast number two. Yeah. See, that's we're gonna come back to the closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> In the closet with Eliza Pressman. Dr. <laughs> Eliza Pressman. Um, but I think that's a it's it's so it's such a gift to give our kids. 
to not help them feel like victims. And it happens in the tiniest ways. When they come home and tell us a story about what somebody did to them at school, our first instinct is often to say, like, either how horrible was that? Or on the other side of it, what did you do to deserve that? Or did you, you know, one one judgmental way or another, instead of imagining what would it look like in this world if we just heard them and said, hmm, sounds like you had a day and waited if they had any questions. Do you want me to, do you want my advice or do you want me to just listen and not get into like, oh my God, that's horrible. I hope you never do that. I hope you learn not to behave like that because you get kids who grow up and feel like people are out to get them all the time instead of a sense of, oh, they might've been having a terrible day. I wonder what made him talk to you like that. And so I do think it would be nice if we can really consider just planting seeds of being forgiving, letting things go. So when kids obsessively ruminate over a wrong, which happens as they get older, to really say to them, I'm here to listen, and then we're going to put it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we need to, to, we need to sit with this, be upset about it, and then we've got to move on. Otherwise, they hold the key to your freedom, that other person. Mm-hmm. Okay, number four. Uh, that's it. <laughs> I have no other reason. I thought it'd be fun. No. Number I, four, it should be fun. It should be fun. I think we need to have a little bit more fun parenting. And even with the people that know what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do, we all need to have a little bit of fun because they are so damn cute. And there's so much that we miss because we're trying to get it right. And it's just so incredible. And I know sometimes it's tiring and infuriating and exhausting and scary and all those other things. But if you just take a step back and look at those little faces, <laughs> you know, they're like, you can't even tell somebody, look, like, tell me what you're, t- close your eyes for a second and just picture your kid's face. There's nobody, there's no better smile from a person than when you ask them to do that. Because it's just like... It's joy. Well, number four is now officially my favorite of the one through four. All right. I hear people. I hear the kids. So I feel like we should go say hi to the kids. I love you. I Thank love you, you for more. doing this. Let's do it again. We're so doing it again. I know. We'll find all the closets around the world. Yeah, I think we should. Do, well, it's just so womb-like and like it's yummy womb-like. and cozy. Thank you, everyone, for listening, by the way. I hope that you are happy wherever you are listening to this and that you feel not alone. And we're all just trying to do our best and, as Aliza says, raise good humans. So what did you think? Was it weird hearing us so casual or was it refreshing? My show note is just to clarify that when I was talking with Drew about the science of sleep, I was just talking about children, not infants. We're going to have a whole podcast dedicated to healthy sleep for infants and solving sleep challenges at a number of ages. But for now, I just want to clarify that when I said that there is no evidence to support where a child sleeps, only evidence that says children need consolidated and consistent sleep, I was not referring to infants. In fact, 
For infants, there is scientific evidence that bed sharing does carry a slight, though statistically significant, risk. And the risk is higher if you have plush blankets and pillows on the bed, if you or anyone else in the house smokes, and if anyone in the bed has had alcohol, drugs, sleep medication, etc. Like many choices you make as a parent, you think about the risks and benefits and make your own decisions. I hope you can count on me as a reliable resource to get the information you need to make those choices. Thank you for tuning in to my very first episode of Raising Good Humans and for trusting me with your valuable time. For clips, updates, or to DM me with questions that you would like addressed on the podcast, please follow me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. And tune in next when I interview Dr. Dan Siegel, child psychiatrist and neuroscientist, and author of The Whole Brain Child, Parenting from the Inside Out, and many other incredible books on my favorite topic, Raising Good Humans.